welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and whether you are a returning listener or perhaps this is your first time, it's great to have you here with us today. Now, I do have a little favor to ask of you, and that is that you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. By doing that, it helps other people find us, but it also, importantly, motivates us to keep producing great content for you. So all you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom of the page, select ratings and review, and write a review. We'd be very appreciative. And even if you've done it before, feel free to show the love and do it again. So with that said, let's get on with today's episode. The world over, the salon industry is a collection of small businesses, and in many cases, the owners of those businesses are often overwhelmed with issues around employment law, tax, health and safety updates, changing legislation, and a raft of other challenges, as well as all the fun stuff that comes with being a small business owner. Luckily, in many countries, we're supported by industry associations that are there to offer information, support and guidance to help salon owners to navigate their way through the maze, as well as offering solutions and a sense of community. Today's podcast is the third in a series of three episodes where we talk to key representatives of associations in the United Kingdom, the United States and Australia to get an overview of the hairdressing industry in each of their respective countries, the challenges they face and the solutions that they have. My guest on today's podcast is Richard Lambert, who is the Chief Executive of the National Hairdressing and Beauty Federation, otherwise known as the NHBF. And in today's podcast, we're going to discuss the hairdressing industry in the United Kingdom. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Richard. Hi, Anthony. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. It's great to be here. Well, it's really good to have you here. This is, uh, as I was saying before we started recording, this is the third in a series of three. And it's really good to talk to, you know, the people that head up the associations in the industry, because I don't know if it's just the hairdressing industry, but I often find that, you know, associations have really good perspective and good overview and they're very factual and maybe in the hairdressing industry there's a lot of emotion and a lot of um you know guesstimates for want of a better word so one of the reasons i like talking to uh, the association heads is that, is that they're, they're very solid reliable sources of information uh so on that basis let me start off with a little icebreaker question that is just a bit of fun or a bit of stupidity, on, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, I've got two questions. Uh, you can choose which one. It's either question A or question B. Uh, which one would you like to be asked? I shall go for question A, please. Question A is, who was your childhood teenage crush? Uh, Debbie Harry. Okay, that's a good I had, choice. I had a poster of Debbie Harry on my bedroom wall um, throughout my teenage years. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm sure you weren't the only one. Okay, <laughs> right. Uh, so let's move right on. So I always like to start off by 
getting my guests to pretty much introduce themselves. So uh, what I ask for is for you to give us your sort of two-minute backstory. So just give us an overview of, of who is Richard Lambert and, uh, you know, how did you find your way into this industry? And, uh, and then we can sort of dig into, you know, more generalised things in the rest of the interview. So over to you. So I've been Chief Executive of the National Hair and Beauty Federation for eight months. I joined in October. This is my third Chief Executive Jobs running a membership organisation. Um, I, When I left university, I got a job in the House of Commons as a parliamentary civil servant. I worked there for 10 years. So my background is all government, politics and administration. And I left there, went briefly into commercial lobbying, wound up as a policy director in a trade association, British Property Federation, which is the British organisation that represents commercial property owners and, com- and big corporate landlords. From there, I got my first chief exec job at the British Woodworking Federation. So that's joinery manufacturing, people who make timber doors, stairs, windows, that kind of thing. I was there for just short of 10 years, then moved to the National Landlords Association, which represents small-scale private residential landlords. And I was there until March 2020 when it merged with another organisation to form one big national organisation for private landlords. And that seemed to be the point for me to move on and look for something else. And this was the one, this was the job that came up, caught my interest. The more I, the more I looked at it, the more I liked the job, the more I liked the people who were running the organisation, the more I liked the look of the industry and the more I thought I could do something with the organisation. So I took it and here I am. Fantastic. Okay. So 10 months ago, that's called a baptism of fire, you know, being dropped straight into, you know, COVID and uh, taking on a new industry that you didn't have any background in. Uh, That that must have, uh, you know, sort of shaken you to the core a little bit, (laughs) to put it mildly. Well, Having done, having run other organisations, the organisational stuff is incredibly familiar. So I have no, you know, no difficulty with that. And quite quickly, I could see what what I thought the organisation needed and where I thought I could make help develop things. The subject matter, I still only know hairdressing as a client. I've yeah. not yet had a chance to actually go and visit a member and get them to talk me through it from their side. And I know from past experience that that's the best way you get to learn about a new industry. You go out, you visit your members, you go to their place of work, and they talk to you about what it is they do and how it, work, how it works, and you get an understanding from them on the grassroots. And that's probably the biggest frustration I have. I've been stuck in a room in East London for yeah. all but one month of my time here. Right. Okay. All right. Well, let's just start with that uh, around the COVID thing. Um, And this is probably too early for you to have any real facts about it. But, you know, over the last, you know, few months, there's been a fair bit of press about the uh, industry in the UK and the impact of COVID and lots of numbers floating around about how many salons have closed and how many people have lost jobs and all this sort of stuff and and, and how many people are not returning to the industry. Uh, Do you have any any sort of substantial facts that can sort of validate anything to, to give people some, you know, accurate uh, reporting on those things? It's still very difficult because it's a fluid situation. You know, we don't know how many people, we, we know people have reopened. We don't, and we, know, we have a sense of how many people have closed in the lockdown periods. So we think we've got something like a 15% loss. In right. The sector. Okay. Uh, yeah. over the past year. So that if that works out something around about seven, seven and a half thousand businesses. Wow. 
We don't have a sense of employment. That's because obviously not everybody has come back yet. Not if we've still got furlough working its way through. Yeah. Um, we don't know how many people will be back when salons are able to operate fully. At the moment, most salons on average are operating at about 70%. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still an uncertainty about how many people will return actually to employment. Um, certainly seen in other sectors. So, for example, in the construction recession uh, of 20, 2009 to 10, a lot of people went and found other work because there was no work on the construction sites. When construction started to pick up, they didn't necessarily come back. And we won't know that impact for maybe another year, 18 months. Right, um, okay. So it's, it's, it's a bit of an uncertain situation. What we do know is that we've had more than 240 days in the last year of businesses closed, mm. but still with all the expenses to pay, just keeping that facility in place to go back to. And that's put people in a really difficult position. So we did some research around our lobbying for the budget. We have found that one in 10 salon owners got no return from their business last year, nothing at all. Mm. Um, the level of debt that most businesses are carrying has tripled on a, um Something like two-thirds of um, salon businesses are now in debt. More than half had no cash reserves going into 2021. Um, 55% of owners were putting uh, their own savings into their business. It's a very precarious position. And we are really stressing to the government at the moment that um, there there is the support that's been available in terms of the grants, in terms of furlough, the relief from business rates, the, uh, the moratorium on on uh, lease evictions, that all needs to be with that need we need to be that needs to be weaned away rather than withdrawn because there, there, there's still a huge amount of vulnerability in the sector. Not as bad as maybe it was in February March, but it'll be there for a while to come. And we need time just to get things get back on an even keel, get back on feet, get back working the way we once were. Right. Okay. So seven thousand salons, ballpark figure. That's a that's a significant, um, you know, dent in the you know total amount of yeah. salons in the country. Um, well, well I'll, I'll come back to that later on. Um, what uh, if, if someone was saying to you, okay, so Richard, what is the purpose of the NHF, meaning the National Hairdressing Federation? Uh, what would how would you answer that question? What what's the purpose of these associations? So. Most small small business trade associations, and, and it, this is a small business trade association supporting small businesses, they're there to provide advice, information, and guidance. Most small businesses, they know what they know, they do what they do, but it gets to a point where they realise there's much more to running a business than simply doing the day-to-day work. And that's where the association comes in, because we can provide all that wider support and information about legal things, uh, employment, health and safety, um, practicalities around running your business, uh, the, the wider sort of understanding of the regulation and legislation. And then we can also bring, bring together a community, put people in touch with each other. Uh, and there's obviously, as I've just referred to, there's a strong level of um, advocacy work, so speaking up for the, for the sector and trying to make sure that the, the business environment it works in is, is the best that we can make it. You know, compared to the other associations that you've represented, uh, uh, represented, sorry, and the you know the the contacts that you've built up and the credibility and the impact you've been able to have, are you taken seriously by them as being someone who represents this industry? I think 
now we definitely are. I think there has been okay. a trans. I think the last year has seen a transformation in the relationship between the personal care sector. And that's not just the NHBF. I think that's all the organisations. Yeah. Uh, and and government. Yeah. Okay. How are you uh, funded in the UK? The NHBF. So the NHBF is predominantly funded by membership subscriptions. Something like seventy-five percent of our income comes from members paying fees. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I was talking to, you know, your um, equal in the United States, and uh, I didn't realise this that that they actually own uh, the PBA, the Professional Beauty Association. They own NAHA, which is the North American Hairstyling Awards. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas in this country, they're owned by the magazines and and by the manufacturers, and they also own a. Um, basically a, a thing called ISSE, which is like our equivalent of Salon International. So they generate, you know, revenue, not just from memberships, but they generate revenue from, uh, you know, those other sources as well, which I thought was yeah, interesting. Um, so 75% of it comes from, from memberships. And I suppose with COVID, if there's any upside to COVID, would I be right in saying that organisations like the NHBF, have seen a growth in members because all of a sudden people want some support and help and they want to know who to reach out to? We certainly have, yeah. So we saw growth about 30% in wow, the calendar okay. year last year. Yeah. Um, and we're just now, so there was a big spike over the summer, May, June, July last year, a uh, big influx of, of members. We're now going through that renewal cycle uh, and it's challenging because mm. – one of the things you find in, in this kind of organisation is that you're seen as a distress purchase. Yeah. So people, people will come to the organisation and say, I have a problem. Can yeah. you help me with it? Yeah. The organisation says, yes, if you join. So people join. Yeah. Um, you come up to the, the renewal point and people are saying, well, I had a problem. You helped me. I don't have a problem anymore. So I'm not sure mm. I need... The membership. So one of yeah. our challenges is to try and spend the rest of the time after we've solved your initial problem, convincing mm. you of the value of everything else we do yeah, and convincing yeah. you to say. So I, I'm, just, I'm just waiting for the first month's uh, numbers to come in. I suspect we are going to, we are not going to, re- there's going to be a significant proportion of those members who joined last year that we don't retain. Yeah. Uh, because See, they'll... I- yeah, I think it's crazy. I mean, I don't know how, I, don't, I no longer have salons, but I don't know how you can run a salon, whether it's in the UK, Australia, the US, anywhere, if you don't have some professional body that represents you as an employer that you can pick up the phone and talk to for the sake of, how much is a membership a year? Um, it's, uh, it's about £270. I mean, for God's sake. It's less than 80p <laughs> a day. It's less yeah. than 80p a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically a colour that's, exa- that's exactly the comment that people have had from, I've had from, from um, members of, in this organisation and other organisations. So how many salons are there in the UK and, and what percentage of those do you represent, ballpark? So I'll go on the, the pre-pandemic figures because they're the accurate ones. So pre-pandemic, mm. it was about, beginning of 2020, about 45,000. Um, we have around about 7,000 members, so that would have been 15, 15%. Mm. Um, you know, if there's been a 15 obviously that, that contracts if it's a... You know, if, if, there's a if, it, if, it's, if that's contracted by about 7,000, 
then we're you know, actually it's a slight which means we have a slightly bigger proportion. Um, yeah. So uh, so 40, 45,000 salons, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and how many individual hairdressers, licensed hairdressers, any idea? Uh, well, licensed hairdressers, you don't need a license to practice. Uh, of course, you don't in the UK. In, yeah. in, so in, in, in so the operating. UK, if operating we're talking about here. people working, um, yeah. so we think there are about 62,000 employed staff and 93,000 self-employed. So that makes about 156,000. But... Okay. I'm going to add this in. Um, when we were doing the economic analysis um, the, for, the, for the budget, um, the researchers said that they'd looked at the data. They thought there was possibly up to 30,000 unregistered enterprises in the yeah. hair and beauty sector. So actually there could be maybe 74,000, 75,000 mm. businesses in there in hair and beauty total. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, big jump. Oftentimes when people think about salons, you know, they'll think about a few high-profile salons that they see on their high street or that they know of, and they'll make a they'll have a perception about how big the average salon is in the UK. So the question I want to ask you this is that, you know, yes, we all know there's salons out there that have got 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, 80 staff and them or whatever. But what is the average in the UK? What's the average size salon? In terms of staff it's between four and nine people. So 73% from the, again, this is all pre-pandemic. We don't have the, yeah. the figures from the end of last, but from so the 2019, beginning of 2020, 73% of salons employ between one and four people uh, and 21% between five and nine. Right. Okay. So uh, it, it, something majority, only, it, majority yeah, of a, them, one yeah, to four. Yeah. Just, yeah. In terms of finance, um, just over 1% turn over more than half a million pounds a year. And from what we found, 70% of enterprises, so that includes self-employed, but 70% of all businesses, whether salons or self-employed, turn over less than the VAT threshold. Which is 80,000. 85,000. The threshold to pay value-added tax. Yeah, so yeah. that's a hundred thousand US dollars ballpark. Yeah, there okay. Is, yeah. All right, so um, that's interesting. Um, now I know in the UK that you can go to a private school um, and do a diploma course, or whatever, or you can do an apprenticeship. What, what is the, the the breakdown of that? What's the ratio of apprenticeship versus private school? Um, you know, graduates into the industry. It's really difficult to get accurate figures uh, because yeah. there are so many different routes into the apprenticeships. So the, the uh, organisations that actually award the qualifications, they estimate it's something like 60-40 between apprenticeships and the college-based routes, the pro private school, as you call it. You know, we touched on before the sort of different business models. What, what is the predominant business model for salons in the UK at the moment? Because I know it's been shifting a lot. Is it, you know, how much, what percentage of them are self-employed? What percentage of them are employees? Well, again, that's difficult. To tell. So um, we now know that something like 60% of the, of all the whole sector is self-employed. Okay. Um, but you will, what you will find is that there will be some salons where they will have a mixture of employees and uh, and chair renters. Some salons have gone completely chair renter, space renter. Um, but the rented you know, rent chair is now possibly probably the dominant um, 
Yeah. I, I mean, I remember when I was, you know, working in salons in London years ago, that certainly was not a common, you know, uh, uh, model at all for employment. So it's obviously growing and growing rapidly. What do you think is driving that? Uh, I think there are a number of things driving it. I think firstly, there's the desire of individuals to have a bit more control over their lives and to, and also to have, uh, to, to, to have more of what they own for themselves. Um, I think uh, so that whole drive of independence and entrepreneurship. Uh, I think there is um, a perception from the salons that it is very difficult to compete with freelance and with self-employed and with the smaller salons because so once you cross that £85,000 threshold and you're liable for value-added tax, mm. the, the marginal impact of that, the, the impact of having to pay um, VAT on your next year's takings at 20% is quite dramatic. So you go as soon as you go over 85000 effectively your, your turnover drops by turnover that goes to you drops by 20 percent yeah um so so, so that and then that means you've got to charge value added so you've got to charge higher prices to cover that or you also you're also incurring the costs of um the additional employment costs national insurance pensions holiday pay or that kind of thing so there is a very much a perception of the salon, the employer salons that they find it difficult to compete on price with the freelancers and the smaller salons who don't have to pay those additional taxation costs Mm. So that's another thing that I think is driving people to look more and more towards a, a, a chair renter, a space renter um, approach. And I think the other one, and I think this has really been accelerated over the last year, is I think a lot of younger uh, people want the flexibility. They're, they don't necessarily want to go into the commitment of owning a salon now. And I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about how they started, they, they were running their own salons, owning their own salons at quite young ages, much younger than you would expect the business owner to be in, in other industries. Mm. I don't think there's that same sort of sense of wanting to commit to that right now. People want the flexibility. They, they, they want the flexibility, they want the freedom, and they want the chance to sort of explore their own opportunities and entrepreneurship. There's, I think there's going to be a convulsion in the commercial property over the next three to five years. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to see anything like the return to offices or city centres that people once expected. I think there's going to be a lot of empty commercial property. And I think that will mean that use will change uh, and, and mm -hmm. approaches to that will change. I think property owners will be, you know, there will be quite, there will be some who will be quite innovative. They will think about new ways of, of leasing, of getting people into those properties and finding some way to get the rent into it. The successful models will then be copied very rapidly because that's the way the property market works. Yeah. Um, and I think what people will start to think about is uh, on the, for the high street um, and, for the, and for the shopping centres, particularly the shopping centres and some of those big shopping units, what brings people in? What brings you, and the th one, of, one of the proven things over recent years is that hairdressing and beauty uh, uh, the other are businesses that will bring the footfall into the high street, into the shopping center, and people will come there, and then they will move to other parts of the to other other, other businesses around the shopping or retail um, a retail grouping. So, yeah. I think I think there could be some really interesting things going on in terms of the way space is let, 
And I think what will happen then is that some of these newer models will then emerge and evolve. I, mm. This is one of the reasons why I thought the job was so interesting, because you even last September, October, you could see things were changing in this sector and things were evolving. I think one of the things I'm trying to encourage my board to think about is how is the sector changing? How is it, what's it going to look like in five years time? Because actually as an organization, we need to be aware of that. We need to be making sure that we can support the sector as it evolves and moves rather than just saying, well, here we are, this is what we do, take it or leave it. We might find that the sector's moved on without us because yeah. that evolution is nothing to do with that. It's not going to stop just because we don't, we don't want to work with it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting with your background working for the Landlords Association, you've obviously got quite a, an insight into that world of commercial property. One of the things that it, it, it varies, again, country to country, the home hairdressing thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the home hairdressing thing in the UK has always been a little bit of a problem. It's been a huge problem in, the, uh, in Australia. Um, and in the US, it was pretty much illegal. However, depending on the state you were in. However, what's happened with COVID is it's driven a big explosion, from what you gather, of uh, an underground market of home hairdressing because, you know, they didn't necessarily have the, and depending on the state, the support from the government, et cetera. So it was a case of, I have to eat, I will go to clients' houses and do their hair. And coming out the back end of that, you're realising that actually a lot of clients are going, I quite enjoyed that, you know, um, and so I want to continue to have the hairdresser come to me. And so I know now that in the US that there are even some salons that are now putting that on their menu, that we can send someone to you. One of our staff will come to you for a, uh, a premium fee, uh, but you know that they've got all the right training, they've got the right insurance, you book them through us, they get a percentage, the salon gets a percentage. Um which is interesting, and that's as a result of COVID, and I think that there's going to be more of that, not less of that. How does that translate to what's happening in the UK in terms of the home hairdressing market? And this is where you talk about the grey market, uh, because it is a problem. I mean, is it something that you're seeing that there's going to be more of or, or what? Well, let's just distinguish, because there are people who have been freelance mobiles doing home hairdressing uh, for, for years, and yep. they... That they are they are above board, perfectly yep. legitimate, totally. You know, yeah, they run. They work to proper standards. They declare their income. They they're running. They're running legitimate businesses. Yeah, I think what we are concerned about is, is, is some of that great that what that great what that grey market actually means. You know, mm. So are they people operating to the same standards? I, 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 and hygiene in the past year particularly has mm. been a concern. Uh, and I know that hygiene is a really important part of training. It's a big, it's a big part of what salons do. You would expect a professional freelancer mobile to take that with them. I, certainly, we've had complaints coming back to us of, of people who who haven't adhered to those kind of the the extraordinary expected hygiene standards. Never mind the additional ones for COVID, for COVID yeah. protection. Yeah. Um, so. I think there is a there is a, and there is a big concern from the salon based sector about what kind of what the quality and the standards of the people going out uh, who've gone into mobile in the past year are actually maintaining. Um, I mean, we are so that that and I think that will be something which increases 
over time because if there are genuine issues, if there are issues, eventually they will emerge. If they emerge, they will attract the attention of the regulators, first mm. in health and safety, then in wider kinds of enforcement around trading standards, and I think certainly around taxation. Um, yeah. and that, that may have a sort of wider ripple because you can look on the whole thing around this whole move towards a much more self-employed, freelance, mobile sector, mm. whether they end up as chair renters, as space renters in a salon or completely mobile or even operating out of a facility in, within their own home. Uh, you've had people converting rooms, converting uh, garages or, or sheds into salons. Uh, there's a whole sort of how far is that the the sort of penetration of the gig economy mm. into into hair, hairdressing? How much of it is genuine freelance, genuine self-employment? How much of it is self-employment in all but name? I think you know, once that starts to permeate into the into the enforcement sector, you know, the regulators are going to start to take an interest, and that could be some people behind themselves asked being asked some very difficult questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there much conversation, you know, in a, in, a, in the association, for example, w- about the long-term implication of that in terms of new people coming into the industry? Because the more freelancers that, that there are out there, the less opportunities there are for a young hairdresser, a young apprentice, a school leaver who wants to get an apprenticeship because there are less and less opportunities because less and less salons. Is there much discussion around that? Oh yeah, definitely. That's a that is a really big worry, and uh, it's probably the, the the single biggest concern about the move towards self employment is the fact that self employed don't, by their nature, train apprentices. Mm. Yeah, um, and what people are saying so that so people are saying well if where will the apprentices where will, where will the trainees come from where will the new entrants come from will they come through a purely college route. And that's already something that's being pushed by government policy because government policy now is to, certainly in England, is to mm. move away from apprenticeships towards T levels, which are predominantly college-based. But the concern that I get back is people who come out of college, they may have a level of technical skill, but they are not salon ready. They are not ready to do the job because they're not used to, they don't have the custom service skills yet. They're yeah. not used to working selling. They say in some cases they found that almost like they're they're not used to the physical demands of being on your feet in a salon working for, yeah. uh, five six days a week. Just just clarify when you say college for our international audience, what do you mean by that? Private school, so government school? What like what what, what does that look like? It, so college would be some kind of full time educational establishment. Uh, could be part of the further education system. So that's the, po- the post-16 uh, education system after you leave school. Uh, or as it could be, could be some form of private tuition and there are, there are, yeah. there are private training. Um, I think I draw a difference. So I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that it is purely, it is not based in a salon. So you are, you are effectively in a classroom and you're, you're, you're being taught by tutors. You are not primarily working in a salon, what, working under supervision of experienced stylists, experienced salon owners, learning, the, learning, on, learning on the job effectively, as yeah. much as learning the, 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 theory, the theory to make sure you, you have your qualification. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, 
one thing I've been been sort of asking people in different countries is to summarize what are the employee benefits in the UK. So if you're a young hairdresser, you're a young 20-year-old, you get a job in a salon, what can you expect in terms of, you know, vacations and holiday pay and, you know, different allowances for sick leave and health and all that sort of stuff? What would be the norm? Okay, so the UK has a minimum annual leave, which is requirement by law, which is 20 days plus the uh, statutory bank holidays. So that's eight in most years, although next year, because it's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, um, there'll be an extra bank holiday there, so that'll be nine. Um, We have a system of maternity uh, or adoption leave, uh, which is up to a year, up between nine months and a year for uh, a woman to take out uh, of the workplace. Uh, Six weeks on 90% of pay, and then uh, there's a statutory minimum which is round about 90 to 100 pounds from memory um there is a system of paternity leave but that's not paid that's paid uh, to pay the same kind of minimum um there's a requirement to provide a pension uh which is matched to staff which is their match contribution um so it's up to i think it's up to three percent at the moment although it's about to go up to five in a, in a year or so um so you as the employee pay 5%, the employer pays 5%. Or, or that's for a pension. A pension. That's for, that's for a pension, yeah. So right, okay. there was a concern about 15 years ago in the UK that people were not saving enough for pensions and not wide enough across the sector. So now uh, an employer is required to offer a pension uh, mm. and is required to enroll all their employees into a pension scheme and the employee has to choose to opt out. But yeah, to be honest, it's free money. The employer has to give you that money. So, it, and it's and it's uh, saving for a pension is a good thing, as anybody who gets mm. their fifties will tell you, whether they've yeah. done it themselves or not. That's the point in time when you realise it's a uh, <laughs> exactly. I appreciate yeah. it's very difficult to convince a twenty-one-year-old that uh, that a pension is necessarily the thing they should be thinking about, particularly when they start to realise that it means handing over money. But yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Sick pay is usually statutory sick pay, so it's what, I, and um, you know, certainly for the first year. Although then it starts to depend on what the employers offer, because there so are, there are other, you know, some employers. So, so what, say, do you, what, what do you mean statutory sick pay? The statutory sick pay is there is a legal re, minimum legal requirement that if people mm-hmm. are off for more than a certain number of days, um, they are they they pay that. The, the state will pay that. The state pays that, or the employer pays that. Mm. Um, but then what tends to happen is that after you've been there for a certain period of time, uh, the employer will, will, will give you, will pay more now, pay a proportion of your salary. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, All right. So w- when we're talking about pay, I mean, I know we said that, uh, something like 60% plus are self-employed. Um, but with the, with the remainder, what is the most common form of how, a hairdresser is paid in the UK? Is it a commission? Is it a salary? Is it some sort of mix of the two? What's your take on that? It's usually a mix. It depends very much on the salon's policy. Um, most people will be, so who, anyone who's employed will be on um, a wage uh, and we have a minimum wage system in the UK. So that's currently £8.71 an hour for anybody over 23. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's slightly lower rates for for people in the younger age brackets. Uh, but then, yeah, there's a good chance that there'll be some form of bonus or tips 
um, sorry, bonus or commission and, and possibly tips as well on top yeah. of that. And the bonus or structure will depend very much on the, on the individual salon. Mm. Okay. All right. Um, we've sort of got about uh, five minutes to go. So uh, just a, a few things here. I mean, some of this we've already touched on, but what, what do you think the biggest challenges that salons are having, you know, going forward? I mean, yes, COVID is obviously impacting on that, but whether we had COVID or not, there'd be challenges that salon owners were facing. What, what would you say those biggest challenges are? Okay. So we've touched on a couple. I think, um, the future skills in the sector, uh, the increase in self-employment and the growth of the gig economy and finding mm. qualified workers. I think one of the things that's been a, been a bit of a surprise, although maybe it shouldn't have been, is that um, is the number of uh, former EU nationals who were working in the hairdressing and the, the beauty sector who returned home last year as the pandemic started and who are not coming back now because of Brexit. Mm. Um, I don't think we really have a sense of quite what the gap that emerges there. So there's, a, there's, there's potentially there's a big skills gap. Yes, recovering from the pandemic, just getting back on an even keel is going to be a big issue. But part of that recovery is not just getting back to working again. It's also dealing with the consequences. So many businesses would have taken loans. They would have negotiated payment holidays. So they've got a buildup of debt and arrears. And that could take three, five years to pay off, maybe, depending on the scale, um, mm. because that's all coming out of your, your cost, your cost and your profit. Um, so I think there's a need to really improve business education. My impression of hairdressers is very similar to, my, to the, the woodworking sector. Very few people came into this, to running salons, to run a salon. They, they came up through the tools. They, they wanted to be hairdressers. They learned to be hairdressers. They were good hairdressers. They find themselves running a business for the multiplicity of reasons. You're running a business. You wanted to go solo. You didn't like the person you were working for. Mm. You were the person holding the parcel when the music stopped, whatever. Yeah. They're very good at cutting hair. They're not necessarily as sharp as they could be or should be on running a business. And I think given the financial pressures that are going to be faced in the next couple of years. I think people really need to look at their businesses and really try and work out how to get the most out of that to help them get through that. Um, yeah, definitely. Get through the, next few years. the other thing I'd say, environment and, self and sustainability, that mm. is really starting to come up to us from our members as something that I think the sector should really do be doing something more about. I know there are some initiatives and we're looking at what we can do to support that in the future. Mm. Okay. Um, one of the things that you mentioned there was shortage of people coming into the industry as well. Uh, and I'm not saying this is your job, but I'm just asking you, what, what, what is the NH, NHBF doing to try and elevate the industry as a career choice? That's something that we're actively looking at right now. I say we're really conscious that there is a potential skills gap and we feel that we need to be doing something to contribute to resolve addressing that. So we will be running a publicity campaign next month called Shaping the Future of the Industry, where we're trying to encourage employers to take on apprentices, but also trying to encourage people to come into the sector. I think we need to try and do some work with schools and with the education sector to mm. really to put forward hairdressing as a, as, a, as a viable career option. I think the message I'm getting back from NHBF members is their frustration that 
they feel that hairdressing, vocational training is seen very much as what you do if you can't do anything else. There's a big emphasis on academic education mm-hmm. and going on to A-levels and so on. They feel that's not necessarily suitable for everyone. Mm-hmm. And this actually provides a really good option for, for people who, who may not be best suited to the academic route because it gives them an opportunity to express their creativity, to develop a skill, to and you know, to open and run businesses. And yeah. If you look at the number of the, the the number of younger people who get to running businesses before the age of thirty five in this sector, it really is quite remarkable. The real outlet for entrepreneurship, which I think is greatly underestimated. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, uh, well, I want to finish that on a on a positive note. What what do you see as being the best thing about the salon industry in the UK? So, in the short time I've been here. And with the, the limited exposure I've had, because obviously I haven't been able to get out and visit my members, and that is still a huge frustration. My perception is that it's it's incredibly resilient. I mean, just think of what it's had to deal with in the last year. It's adaptable, uh, moves quite fast. It's been it's you know, there's a lot of scope for develop both both personal and you know, professionally. I'm really impressed by the real emphasis on the client, the customer, and the way it's a really People don't just see them as providing a, a simple service in terms of cutting hair. It's about a whole person experience. And they really, when the lockdowns came, people were frustrated, not just because they couldn't work, but because they couldn't provide the support and the communication to, to, the, to the people who'd come to be, come, be coming to see them for, for years. I think there's a huge amount of passion and enthusiasm from the people who work in salons. I think they feel themselves part of a big community. Mm. And actually, there is some research. There's a cabinet office report that says that hairdressing is considered to be one of the happiest jobs in the world. Yeah. I'm sure it's not felt like that for big mm. chunks of the past year, but mm. I think you just had to see the sort of the, almost a release of pent-up emotion in those last few weeks before reopening. And since, uh, I think people just really love what they do and they're really excited to do it. Yeah, I think consistently it comes up as being a, 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 a one of those careers that people that do it um, are very happy about their work, which is a great thing. Okay, so look, we, we need to start wrapping up. Is there a final message that you'd like to leave with hairdressers and salon owners everywhere, regardless of what country they're in, uh, specifically about the value of joining and belonging to their associations? I would say in this day and age, there is a huge amount of government regulation, a huge amount of change, a huge amount of law um, that you just had to comply with. It's important to know what's going on. And you, know, you, can't, you do not have the time or the, to find it out for yourself. So come to, you know, you, let, let us, the association, do what we're good at so that you can concentrate, to help you so that you can concentrate on doing what you're good at. Yeah. Good. Okay. Whereabouts can people uh, connect with you, whether they're UK-based or not, um, on social media channels or website? Is there somewhere you'd like to point them? So uh, the website is www.nhbf.co.uk. We are on all the main social media platforms at NHBF Social. Um, And uh, if you go onto our website, um, you can email me directly there if, if you want to talk to me directly. I cool. do my best okay. to answer everyone who comes to me. 
Fantastic. Okay. So I'll put those links on our website, growmysalonbusiness.com and the show notes for today's podcast. If you listen to this podcast with Richard Lambert and have enjoyed it, then do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of our uh, interviews and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you've done so before, you're welcome to do it again. So to wrap up, Richard Lambert from the NHBF Thank you very much for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.